Can you feel the wheel of the year turning? In this season of each day growing incrementally shorter, can you sense our inexorable movement here, at least in the northern hemisphere, toward winter solstice, the darkest day of the year? It can be easy to get caught up in the darkening of our days, to become disheartened, discarded, even depressed. At various times, I've experienced each of those responses to winter. As a way of navigating seasonal shifts, I've become increasingly interested in and benefited from being attentive to the annual cycle of seasonal festivals known in paganism as the Wheel of the Year. The two most obvious turning points, of course, are the winter solstice and the summer solstice. And here on the edge of winter solstice, with sunrise after 7 a.m. and sunset before 5 p.m., it can sometimes be hard to remember that on the opposite side of the year, the time is presumably coming again, barring a Mayan apocalypse, when sunrise will again be before 6 a.m. and last until almost 9 p.m. During these current days, though, of barely even nine and a half hours of sunlight, it can be hard to envision a time only six months from now of nearly 15 hours of daylight each day. And if you imagine the wheel of the year as a circle with December at the top and June at the bottom, then the two solstices, they bisect the wheel of the year into two halves. If you add in the fall and spring equinox, um, when days are equal parts light and dark, at right angles to the solstices, then that divides the year into quarters. Winter, spring, summer, and fall. But what interests me most about paganism's attention to the passage of time is the additional nuancing of the seasons into what are known as the cross-quarter days. So that instead of only four seasons, you're invited to notice eight equally divided turning points in the cycle of seasons. In our our technology-filled world of 24-7 connection and almost constantly available artificial light, The wheel of the year redirects our attention back to the cycle of the seasons and how they affect us. Now, at the same time, I should be clear that I'm grateful that no matter what the time of year, barring some sort of natural disaster, I can create light whenever I want it. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that when it's uncomfortably hot or cold, I can adjust the thermostat. But my interest in the wheel of the year is in the ways it can help us be more attuned to the rhythms of the natural world, even in the midst of our 21st century lives. To name one of the negative ways that the seasons can affect us, in these increasingly short days, many people suffer from at least some degree of seasonal affective disorder, which um, SAD are the first three letters, and that acronym SAD points to the effect that winter has on many people, an increasing sense of sadness, a complex of symptoms that I've experienced as well at some point from decreased exposure to sunlight or perhaps to some natural bodily response that triggers our, a change in our circadian rhythms. 
But the invitation of attuning yourself to the wheel of the year is far from all negative. If you're someone who's eager for winter to pass, then instead of feeling like you have to wait till Easter, also known as the vernal equinox, to celebrate the coming of spring, the wheel of the year marks early February as a midpoint between winter solstice and the first day of spring. Because even by early February, the days are noticeably longer and may be reason, and that may be reason enough to pause and savor the lengthening of days. That word lent, some of you may know that from the Christian tradition, actually comes from the word for lengthen. So 40 days before Easter, you notice lent, you notice a lengthening of the days. So it goes, and so it goes that every month and a half, you're invited to notice that one of the eight annual turning points in the wheel of the year has come, and you're invited to honor the ongoing cycle of the seasons. Now, of course, the progression of seasonal change is much more spiral than linear. There are anomalies. Take earlier this week, for example. We had two glorious days that where the temperature was in, the high was in the low 70s before the low plunged again promptly below 30. But I loved those two days. If I wake up and the temperature's above 60, I'm happy. And I'm one of those people who really rarely minds if it's hot and humid and above 100. I'm sort of peculiar that way. I'm from the South, you know. (laughs) Midsummer is my favorite time of year, but I'm learning to love the winter. Or at least I aspire to want to learn to love the winter. (laughs) And certainly the absence of sunlight makes me appreciate summer all the more. Now, having confessed my love of summer and my mixed emotions about winter, is there anyone here this morning besides Laura whose favorite season is winter? Okay, so we've got quite a few scattered about. How about anyone who just dreads the heat of summer? Probably any, so that may be even more, right? See, see, I love it. Uh, I think I'm solar powered. Uh, uh, Is there anyone who is most drawn to the moderate times of year, like fall or spring? So, okay, even more of you. All right, some moderates in the audience. Uh, Perhaps some of you love all the seasons. Is there anybody that loves all the seasons? All right, you're better people than I am, but uh, you're, you're more evolved. But if you do have a favorite or least favorite season, Uh, As I invited you to consider, I want you to think on what is it that makes it your favorite season? What is it that you love? What is it about your least favorite season also that you dislike? Speaking for myself, I really do feel most fully alive in the summer. I have more energy, I naturally want to be outside more, and it's much easier for me to motivate myself to exercise. In contrast, the colder and darker it is, the easier it is for me to just put exercise on the back burner. I guess it maybe if it snowed a lot here, I could get into skiing or something like that. But, uh, but I recognize that there really are some people with opposite seasonal proclivities, those of you who love the winter. The larger point I'm working toward is that whether your favorite time, that your favorite time of year really might be a clue, in a sense, to a related type of spiritual practice that you're most naturally inclined toward. In addition, your least favorite time of year could also be a clue to a type of spirituality that might be for you an area of most potential growth, because it's that area that you've been most disinclined to explore. 
Of course, your favorite season and type of spirituality could also shift at different times in your life with changing circumstances. But for now, uh, at least for the sermon, take a test drive of focusing on the current season of your life and what has been most true for you in recent years regarding your favorite and least favorite seasons. Now, to give you a little bit more specific examples of what I'm talking about, the following seasonal typology is adapted from the work of the theologian Matthew Fox. If spring is your favorite season, the most natural corresponding spiritual practices might be artistic, creative endeavors corresponding to the flowering and the beauty that happens in the world, or maybe just something related to beauty. If, like me, summer is your favorite season, you may be drawn to active, kinesthetic forms of spiritual practice, things even like play or games, particularly those in the sun-drenched outdoors. Those drawn to autumn may be particularly ripe candidates to focus on transformation, both individual and societal, corresponding to those changing leaves. Finally, those drawn to winter may find spiritual practices of darkness and silence, of letting go and saying no to be particularly fruitful. Now, there's many more we could list, but those are some sample uh, examples. And importantly, these guidelines are not fixed rules. And I don't want to make the connection too literal between the actual season in nature and your spiritual inclinations. During the darkest winter, you may find yourself ebullient for any number of reasons. Conversely, the weather outside could be spectacularly pleasant, but your life circumstances may lead you into a much grimmer state of mind. The more important invitation, then, is to consider two perspectives. First, what spiritual practices, what sort of first-hand experiences might be most life-giving to you at various seasons of the year and various seasons of your life? And second, the wheel of the year could help you perhaps notice some metaphorical seasons that you've been neglecting. To this end, I'll likely take time in future sermons to explore each of the seasons in turn to reflect more fully on the spiritualities that these seasons embody. But with the darkest day of the year approaching on Friday, December 21st, I'd like for us to focus this morning on what it might look like to talk about a spirituality of winter. As I've said before, there are some really insidious ways that our 21st century technologies can prevent us from practicing a winter spirituality. Artificial light, televisions, computer screens, they lure our attention away from ourselves and from the changing world outside of us. The various screens in our lives, from televisions to tablet computers to smartphones, they shine at a constant brightness no matter what the time of day or the season. They can make it difficult to practice a winter spiritual journey of inwardness, of simplicity, of subtraction, of darkness, of silence, and letting go. Now, importantly, my point is not that inwardness, simplicity, subtraction, darkness, silence, and letting go are the most superior spiritual practices. They can sometimes be presented that way, and I think that's really unfortunate, especially for those of us drawn to a spirituality of summer. Uh, There are other points on the spiritual journey in which 
outwardness, complexity, addition, daylight, speech, and connection play equally vital roles. But my point is that a spirituality of winter can be particularly difficult in our current culture, in which far too many people seem to be, or at least claim to be, crazy, busy. Now, I'm going to be talking a little bit next week about uh, slowing down for the holidays, and um, we'll probably think some more about that phrase, I'm crazy busy. Like, what is, what is that saying, you're crazy busy? That's probably not a good thing, right? Uh, but we'll, we'll get there. So as I reflected this past week on what it might look like to talk about a spirituality for the darkest day of the year, I was reminded of an interview I heard a few years ago with Reggie Ray, who's a Western teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. At the time of the interview, Ray had just returned from one of the most hardcore examples of winter spirituality that I've ever heard of. Now keep in mind that Ray has been practicing meditation for more than four decades. So what I'm about to describe is one of those don't-try-this-at-home practices, unless you're significantly advanced as a meditator. As described in the interview, Ray has a practice for at least a few years of what he calls a dark retreat. Spending approximately one month each year in a specially designed cabin that is completely sealed from all light. Those of you like me who have experimented with various meditation practices over the years have probably experienced how easy it can be when your life gets busy to skip your meditation time, to skip your spiritual practice. Although, ironically, those crazy busy days are precisely when we could benefit the most from taking 20 minutes or more of meditation, of mindfulness, of bringing ourselves back fully from the surface of ourselves to the fullness of the present moment. And certainly, locking yourself away in a dark cabin is one way of limiting yourself from some of the standard distractions that can prevent us from practices like meditation, from being fully present. Reflecting on his experience spending a month on dark retreat, Ray says, you go in, you turn off the lights, and there you are. It's you, and it's the darkness. And there's really, really nothing to do. If you decide that you want to anesthetize yourself by going on a walk, or um, it's not available. If you decide you want to pick up a book and read it, or turn on the TV, or do any of the millions of things that we do to distract ourselves from our own experience and our own life just as it is, it's not available. So the only practice in the darkness is simply to sit and open. Sit and open. Sit and open. To let go, to let go, and to let go of whatever self-protective device you happen to come up with. And the goal, at least in the tradition of Buddhism that Ray practices, is to cultivate greater openness to the fullness of each ever-arising present moment. And in the pursuit of greater openness, there are fortunately less severe starting points than booking your next retreat, I mean your next vacation in a dark cabin, completely sealed away from any light source. And even if most of us aren't quite ready now, or ever, perhaps, to spend a month in a completely dark cabin, 
with winter, with winter solstice less than two weeks away, now is perhaps, however, an ideal time to consider what aspect of winter spirituality might be life-giving to you in this season of your life. Consider, for instance, if any of the following prompts resonate with you. If a spirituality of winter is about the inward journey, when is the last time you spent some quality time with yourself, noticing what is going on inside of you? There's a critical difference between isolation and solitude. In the positive sense of solitude, of choosing intentionally to cultivate time alone, when did you last take a long walk by yourself? Not walking the dogs, not walking with an iPod in your ears, but just taking a long walk. When did you last take time to journal? Similarly, if the spirituality of winter is about the inward journey, Perhaps going to a therapist or going to a spiritual director could be seen as a central practice of winter spirituality. If a spirituality of winter is about simplicity, is there anything you feel led to let go of in your life as the trees have let go of their leaves? As we enter into this season of bare limbs and stark landscapes, we can see the transformation in the external world as an invitation to ask what we need to allow to fall away from our lives. On a more humorous note, if a spirituality of winter is about embracing darkness and silence, I'm reminded of the writer Anne Lamont's spiritual practice of trying to remember the acronym WAIT, W-A-I-T. Whenever she finds herself speaking too fast and too unreflectively, she thinks to herself, WAIT, why am I talking? (laughs) Perhaps something to... Ask yourself the next week and notice when there are some times you should think to yourself, wait, why am I talking? <laughs> to, refer, to, refer to, to return to my own earlier confession about seasonal preferences, despite my long-term interest in the practices of what could be called winter spirituality, the inward journey, silence, meditation, darkness, simplicity, my most natural inclination is toward summer. There's so much that I want to see and do. There are so many wonderful books to read, movies to see, songs to listen to. It's particularly intimidating this time of year, right? All people's top ten lists come out. So as you're you're supposed to be practicing the spirituality of winter, we're confronted with all those things we haven't done in the past year and need to, to do before we're presented with even more in 2013. So ultimately, the invitation is to simply consider what forms of spirituality are really most life-giving to you at the various seasons of the year and at the various seasons of your life, as well as what seasons and approaches you may have been neglecting that could be potential areas of growth. But since we're approaching winter solstice, I'd like to invite us, as the sermon nears its end, to experiment briefly with what it feels like to practice a winter spirituality. We can, uh, I want to do a brief silent meditation. I don't think we have time to seal off all the windows and turn off all the the lights. So uh, I'll let you remain seated however is comfortable to you. Uh, Some people find it helpful to put their feet flat on the floor. If that's, you're comfortable doing so, you can do that. Relax your shoulders, um, rest your hands gently in your lap. If you're comfortable doing so, I invite you also to close your eyes to approximate a semblance of darkness.
In a few moments, I'm going to ring the bell again. And after a minute or so, I'll ring that bell a second time to signal the end of the meditation. As a way of shaping the silence and the darkness, I'll leave you with these words from Reggie Ray's experience of spending one month, a year, in the solitude of a dark cabin. In the darkness, what you're doing is you start thinking, you come back to your body. You come back to the feeling of your body. You come back to the bare experience of the darkness. And then you start thinking again, and you start spinning out, and then you gently bring yourself back. The technique is you just choose not to follow your thinking process. You simply bring yourself back over and over to the literal experience of being in your body. Your breathing. Your heart beating. Your bare experience of the darkness all around you, which is nonverbal, non-conceptual, and totally literal. Be present to your body your breathing, your heart beating, your direct experience in each arising present moment of simply being alive. If you find yourself spinning out into thinking, gently return your attention to the feeling of your body. As we near the darkest day of the year, the invitation is to be present without the distraction of light to the aliveness of your body.